chapter 7, turn in the middle of, the, of your Bible. It's also printed for you uh, in the bulletin. Chapter 7, starting in verse 13, we'll go through the end of the chapter. And, uh, you know, we've been in Ecclesiastes for a number of weeks now. We're uh, coming up on about two-thirds of the way done with the book. And it's been an interesting ride. It's a very interesting book. It's one that doesn't get a lot of play. I've heard a number of you uh, say that this is the first time you've ever heard a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, especially in the middle portion here. There's some famous passages at the beginning. There's some famous passages about the end, uh, at the end, about remembering your creator in the days of your youth and all these things. There's kind of some, some highlights at the end and hi- highlights at the beginning that are popular by phrases, life under the sun, uh, nothing new under the sun, that kind of thing. But in the middle here, there's a bit of a section that really is unfamiliar territory for a lot of Christians. And there's some things here that we need. I've been thinking about it kind of like, this is like the B-sides uh, of, of, the, of the album of Scripture, right? Uh, if you know how uh, albums work with music, there's an A-side, which is like the, the catchy tunes. Uh, these are the, the, the public release. And then at sometimes there'll be a B-side release, which is some, some tracks that were cut from the original project. And, um, and for the true fans... Of, of any artist, the, the B-sides are gold, right? They, they want to know what's the artistic process like. They want to see kind of behind the scenes and some, some of the things that maybe the rest of the world isn't into as much. And I kind of feel that way about this middle section of the book of Ecclesiastes. There's a lot of passages here you probably maybe have not even read before or heard a sermon on, and, and yet there's so much wisdom here. And, and it's, it's a bit of an unusual, and by unusual, I don't mean that God's Word is unusual. I mean that, that we don't usually deal in these topics. The theme of this morning is going to be about how we try to get into the mind of God, the, the, to get into the scheme of the world. And, and this is something that the book of Job talks about, and really the book of Ecclesiastes are the only two places in the Scripture that dive into this depth but it's a good thing for us to evaluate together. So all that to say, let's read from verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything, There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise more than ten rulers who are in a city." Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourselves have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters 
He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I have found, that God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. I was thinking about a little episode in the, in the show, The Office. The Office has been out for like 20 years, so I don't know how much longer it's acceptable to do references to it. Probably past its moment, but it just reminded me, thinking about this scheme of things, uh, as Solomon puts it here, there's an episode where, if you haven't seen it, there's a Michael, who's, Michael Scott is this gullible and uh, cheerful, but ultimately uh, not a very good boss, and he gets caught in a pyramid scheme. And uh, he's been sold a bunch of calling cards. Uh, you remember the calling cards. I actually dated my wife first with calling cards uh, in the late 90s, and early 2000s, right? You get a card full of minutes, and you use those minutes. And, uh, and even in the early 2000s, everybody knew that technology was on its way out, right? But, but Michael Scott gets these cards, and he, he says, calling cards are the wave of the future. He's speaking to his employees. He's just been sold these cards so that he can sell them again. And, uh, and so he's talking about this, and the, the, the staff is skeptical of, of this being a future product. And, and then Jim, who's the, you know, the, the office clown and the, the one who uh, you know, challenges Michael the most, who might say, says, now, how is this not a pyramid scheme? And Michael says, okay, well, let me just explain it one more time. So th- there's this one guy at the top, and he drives w- one line. And he says, he recruited two of us, me and this other guy, and he puts two marks next underneath the one. And then he says, if we recruit three more people, and he puts three more marks, and he keeps talking about it, and Jim comes up with a marker, and he draws a pyramid around it. And there's a revelation to Michael that he has now fallen for this pyramid scheme, this thing that was not real. And so then he says, I have a call to make, and leaves the room. There's a scheme behind it, and once you see it, you've got to control the situation. That's what we do. We look for schemes, not just what is true, but like what's behind the truth. What we want to know is what's really behind the thing that will give me the shortcut to the truth, the scheme. And scheme, of course, is not always negative. Scheme is just a word that means the the expected operations of something, the backbone of something. This building has a schematic. It has something that holds it together, a design. And so we we comfort ourselves with the idea of a scheme, that life has these schemes. We say everything will be okay in the scheme of things, one way that we comfort one another. And what we mean by that is when we say it will be okay in the scheme of things is that we we're saying you're, you're looking at something too granular. You're looking at something too up close. When you zoom out, you see that there's a bigger design. There's a scheme to things. So trust in that scheme. And sometimes we even feel the need to expand that. We say there's a bigger scheme here. There's a greater scheme. Or the best one of all, the grand scheme. In the grand scheme of things, which have, implies that there are there's a bigger scheme that contains all the other schemes. All the little designs in the world are now working towards something bigger. There's a grand scheme. 
The phrase is comforting, even though it's just vaguely comforting. Like, what is that scheme? Is there a scheme to things? And if there was, how would we know? It's human nature to look for it. We look for schemes everywhere. We are attracted to understanding what is behind something. How do I parent? Is, can it be boiled down to five principles? Is there a five-principle scheme to parenting or to being married? Is there a scheme to figuring out my financial situation? If I, you know, if I do certain things, if I save a certain way, or perhaps in the religious circles, if I tithe and if I bless others with money, will that, that unlock something for me? Will that give me a certain expected outcome? In the church... We see all of us want schemes. If we evangelize a certain number of people, and they evangelize a certain number of people, and then, then certainly, suddenly all the whole world is full of Christians. How do we disciple people? Can we put it down into nine steps where we can disciple this person through these things, and then they can share it with the next person and the next person? Somehow we have all of these schemes out there, but we end up just kind of being people anyway. And it's not clear that it adds up to something. We can be on the surface with these things, and other times we're asking really deep questions. How do I love somebody? How do I serve somebody? How do I love the spouse that God's given me? I wish there was a scheme. I wish there was an answer that it was predictable. What we want is a shortcut or a guarantee. And that's why we click on those articles to say, it's five ways to do this. It's three ways to find this. But in the end, we end up kind of being the same people. What we really want is the mystery of God to be taken out of the world. Sometimes. We can cut through what God has given us and then find the answers that are hidden beneath the surface. Solomon challenges this perspective. He asks the question, what can we, by our actions, guarantee from God? What can we, by our actions, what can we do to unlock whatever God wants to give us? And spoiler alert, the answer is not much. And he goes on this search. If you remember from the book of Ecclesiastes earlier, Solomon has searched in many different areas. He went on a search before, and now he picks up the searching language again, and he's looking to find out what is the scheme of things? Multiple times in this passage, I sought the scheme of things. I want to know what's behind the reality. And what he finds, we will see in the end, is not much is guaranteed. He gives us three things that are not guaranteed and one that is. Three things that are not guaranteed, one that is. The first one is this. He says first, your righteousness is not a guarantee of blessing. Your righteousness is not a guarantee of blessing. The first few verses, this is the theme. And he says the reason for that is because of the nature of God and the nature of mankind. 
He gives us some theology of who God is and who we are. And he says, therefore, they don't add up to you being able to push some righteousness buttons and get blessing from God. This is contrary to much of the message that we hear from many churches. Churches you might see on TV that say, if you sow a seed, if you give, if you uh, serve someone, then God will multiply that blessing to you. But this is what Solomon says, verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? This is who God is. He, he makes things straight or He makes things crooked. Who can, who can make Him? Who can bend Him to do their own will? The nature of God. He says, consider the work of God. The word consider there is just see. Can you see who God is? If He decides something is going to be the way it is, who are you to say that it's going to be different? He is all-powerful. He is in control. What is He in control of? Verse 14 continues, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What is God in control of? The prosperity and the adversity. It's easy to give God a tip of the hat in prosperity. To rejoice when He has given us things that are good. To say, this is because of God. That's an easy thing to say, but consider in the day of adversity. He says, God has made the one as well as the other. He's in control of the hardship as well. He's in in control of the calamity. God has made the one as well as the other. Solomon says, like Job says, basically, you remember Job's famous words, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And lesser known, but equally powerful in the book of Job, where Job asks the question, shall I receive good from God and shall I not receive evil? Shall I not receive calamity, hardship? The word evil there can mean not just the evil that's in within us, but the hardship that comes on God's people. And so we are encouraged to take a closer look at our faith because of the nature of God. How, do, how are you handling the suffering and adversity that God gives you? Does it cause you to turn toward Him? Or does it cause you to turn away from Him? Because it comes from His hand. This is the nature of God. Then he talks about the nature of mankind. Skip down to me with me to verse 20. Or he makes another theological statement. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So when you ask the question, will my righteousness unlock God's blessing? Part of the answer, Solomon says, is, well, you're not righteous. <laughs> so even if you were, you know, it's not going to unlock his blessing, but you need to know this about yourself. No one is righteous. Paul later is going to pick up this same language in Romans chapter 3 where he tells us that there is none who is righteous, not even one. We don't have this kind of righteousness. Now that's a tricky subject in the Scripture because if you'll read the Bible, you know that people are called righteous. Job, who we just mentioned, is called a righteous man. David is called a righteous man. There is a sense in the Scripture that righteousness is something that we participate in in the sense that there are the righteous and the wicked from Psalm 1. There are those who pattern their life after God. There are those who walk with God and those who don't. 
in an external sense, there is a righteousness to be pursued. However, the Scriptures tell us that in terms of actual um, righteousness that saves us, we have none. There are none who are righteous. And it says it here, who does good and never sins. So there's a kind of full righteousness that everyone falls short of, but there's a kind of on-the-ground righteousness that God recognizes that wears a direction to our lives. But there is no one who continues to be righteous. That's the imperfect verb there. No one continues to be righteous. There's not one. We need to know this about ourselves. We know who God is in control of all good things and the hard things. And we need to know about ourselves that we are not righteous. In between those two things, he gives some examples and some counterexamples. He says, in my vain life, I've seen everything. Let me give you some examples. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is actually kind of a counterexample to what you would expect. I've known, Solomon said, some righteous people, externally righteous, that are following after God, who then had short lives. And I've also known wicked people who continued in their evil doing, but they had long lives. But that's not always the case. Verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? When he says here is that not that you shouldn't try to please God or shouldn't walk with God. He's saying don't depend on your righteousness. Don't think that your righteousness unlocks some kind of blessing because there's counterexamples. There's righteous people who don't live long, but there's also examples. Some righteous people do live long. Why would you destroy yourself? Sometimes wisdom will lead to a long life, and sometimes it won't. There's examples and there's counterexamples. Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? There are plenty of examples of people being foolish and their lives being short because of their foolishness. So let me just clean, clean all this up a little bit. Paul, I mean, Solomon's saying, look, you can't know. There, your righteousness, insofar as you have righteousness, it is not, you can't draw a line between that and God's blessing. Sometimes righteous people live a long time because they're wise. Sometimes righteous people die young. This is what happens. And sometimes evil people live a long time, and sometimes foolishness cuts their life short. What he says the wisdom is, is verse 18, it's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. Translation, it's good that you hold on to this and don't let go of this. Hold two things together. That's what he means. Hold two things together. For one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom means that you don't depend on, that you, that you try to live righteously in a wise life, but that you don't depend on that righteousness for some outcome from God. You cannot draw a line between your faithfulness and positive outcomes. God, another way to say this would be, is not manipulated by our behavior. He's not a vending machine that gives us these blessing treats when we put in our coins of righteousness. That's not the way that He works in the world. Your righteousness is not a guarantee of blessing. Secondly, your reputation is not a guarantee of acceptance. Look at verse 21 with me. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. 
lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So in his search for the scheme of things, and in our search for the scheme of things, oftentimes we think that to unlock what is good and true and beautiful in the world would be to please the most amount of people most of the time. If I could kind of live that way, then, then I will be blessed. I will be accepted. If I'm kind to everyone, if I'm a good leader, then everyone will appreciate you. I tell you from experience, that's not true, right? And, there, and that's dangerous because there can become a moment where you say, why God? If I'm doing the right thing, if I'm living in a certain way, if I'm being good to other people, why are they cursing me? Well, God is not a vending machine of blessing and people are not a, a vending machine of acceptance. You can't use people to get to the scheme of things because you can't rely on their perspective always being the same. Don't take it to heart what other people say. He's saying you've got to learn some disassociation between your callings and your popularity because they don't go together all the time. You're going to hear something that has the power to put you over the edge because the people around you are sinners. And Solomon says, here's some advice. Just do a little self-reflection. Have you ever spoken ill of someone? Did that necessarily mean that you hated them? Did that necessarily mean that you didn't respect them? That that you didn't later think that they were right? You know, I was thinking about all the people that I respect in my life, and my parents, and my teachers, and pastors, and mentors. I was thinking, I probably have said something negative about all of them at some point or another. It's not a good barometer. It's not a good way to measure how you're doing in the world, to look towards other people. Your reputation is not a guarantee of acceptance. Third and finally, your reasoning is not a guarantee of understanding. Solomon says in the later part of chapter 7, wisdom is unfathomable and people are unfathomable. They're not good reliers. You can't rely on them for understanding. Wisdom is unfathomable. Verse 23 All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep. Very deep. Who can find it out? I sought for wisdom and discovered I wasn't able to find it. It was too far away. It was too far down. It was too deep. Now, we've made this point a number of times in the book of Ecclesiastes, but one more time. You and I will never be as capable as Solomon in our reasoning. The Scriptures tell us that he was uniquely gifted by God to be the wisest person. He had a special measure of understanding, and so we've got to trust his brains, his experience on this one. He says, there's things too deep for me. If you think that life is much simpler than Solomon is describing here, it probably suggests that you haven't gone as deep as he has. And for myself, even when I'm going through this, 
you know, these scripture passages every week, try to make it as clear as possible on a Sunday, try to get to the heart of things, try to show things in a simple way. But I'm telling you that the deeper you go into the scriptures, the more the, the depth of the soundings that you hear, it's just there's so much here. And that's the way I feel when I come to the book of Ecclesiastes is that there's a depth here that I don't understand. And what I feel about Solomon is what he feels about God and his wisdom. It's too deep. It's very, very deep. Solomon says, I don't have the equipment. So how can I understand? Through my reasoning. Worse than that, I run into foolishness whenever I seek to be wise. Verse 25 says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Who is this woman that Solomon is talking about? He's not talking about women in general or a particular woman in his life. He's talking about Lady Folly from the book of Proverbs. There's two women that he presents in the book of Proverbs. Lady Wisdom who calls from the streets and Lady Folly. This is his metaphor for falling into foolishness, to being entrapped by this woman. It says a lot about Solomon that that's the picture that comes to his mind, right? Since we know that he struggled with women in his life, he's like, it's like they're calling to me and I get trapped in to foolishness. Even when I'm trying to be wise, I brush up against the depths of God and I find that I don't have the equipment, but even if I did, I get distracted by foolishness. Wisdom is unfathomable, and even when I get close, I'm led away. Finally, he makes the point that people are unfathomable. If you want to get to the scheme of things, perhaps you could find it in understanding how people tick but he says that's a dead end. Verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Difficult passage to understand. First blush, but actually pretty easy when you understand what he's saying about what he's doing. He's trying to find out. That's the whole word that's been used throughout. To find out. That means to plumb the depths of. To fully understand. And what he says is, when I look at people, I think one in a thousand men, okay, I'm starting to kind of understand you, this dude that's standing in front of me. But women, I've never found out. <laughs> this opposite sex is a mystery, right? I don't understand. It's, he's being... He's being over the top on purpose. One in a thousand, maybe I can understand a person, but really, there's a whole group of people that I don't understand. Even people are not discernible to me, much less the wisdom of God. The scheme of things is elusive. It cannot be guaranteed by righteousness, by reputation, or by reasoning. Here's the main point. The grand scheme of things has not been given to us, 
but we have been given enough to entrust ourselves to God's plan. The grand scheme of things, we believe there is one. When we say in the grand scheme of things, that is a true thing. We believe in the grand scheme. We believe that God has a design. But it has not been given to us. By and large, Solomon says, we don't have the equipment to receive that. But we have been given enough to entrust ourselves to God's plan. Look at the last verse with me. Solomon says, See, this alone I found. Oh, thank goodness. I have not found. I have not found. I have not found. I have not found, he says. But this alone I have found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What is Solomon saying? Out of all the things he hasn't found out, he hasn't found out how people work, he hasn't found out the mind of God, he hasn't been able to figure out what will bring adversity versus what will bring peace and joy, he hasn't figured out how to be righteous and therefore make his life better, but he has figured out this. What he does is he encapsulates the story so far. He gives us a biblical theology. Creation and fall. As we've seen, the book of Ecclesiastes can be mapped onto the Garden of Eden. There's so many parallels to the Garden. And here, he goes back to the Garden again and he says, when God made mankind, He made it upright. But we brought in schemes. We wanted to be like God. That was the first scheme. That was the first time that we said, here's the shortcut to blessing. is to take the fruit and say, this will make me like God. That was the first scheme. But God made man upright. The plan of God, as far as Solomon could see, was that God made man right, but we messed it up. We will never be wiser than Solomon, but it is true that we see further than him. God made man upright. Sin brought in schemes, but Christ redeems us from our search to be like God. What's true of Solomon is still true of us, meaning this, we still cannot secure blessing from God by our own righteousness. But, we can go further. We can receive the righteousness of Christ. It has to be imputed to us. It has to be given to us freely. The righteousness of Christ is alien to us. As, the, as we say in theology, it's outside of us. But it's imputed to us. We cannot, by our reputation, be accepted by others. But when we bear the name of Christ, we're welcomed and accepted because of His name, not ours. The one who was cursed like we are cursed, but without sin. We cannot, by our reasoning, scheme our way into understanding the mind of God. But we can be brought into the mind of God through Christ, who Paul says shows us in Christ some of the immeasurable riches of God's wisdom. We can become into the mind of God through Christ. Not fully. Not to know all of His purposes. But in Christ, we can know some things. 
Solomon's point remains true. We don't by our actions guarantee anything from God. But what we can say is that God still gives His guarantee. We can't guarantee anything about our individual lives, but we can guarantee something from God. It is Christ. Hebrews chapter 7 says that Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. He secured for us the blessing that we didn't deserve but still get because of the mercy and grace of God. He guarantees us life in His name for those who trust in Him. And so when we come and we consider, as Solomon says, the work of God, it doesn't mean that we understand everything that He's doing in the world. Solomon's wisdom still stands. We still do not unlock these things. We still can't know the scheme, but we can know more about His plan of salvation. We are just further along in the story. God made man upright. We brought in schemes. God redeemed us from the schemes, but we await for Him to bring us into a new creation. When there will be no scheme, there will be only the design fully realized. And so we are waiting like Solomon is waiting, but a little further down the story, the point for us is still the same. We entrust ourselves to the grand scheme of God. Let's pray.